You're listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may present everyone mature in Christ. Our Father in heaven, we come before you on this Wednesday night, grateful for uh, your care for us. And one of the ways that you care for us is the giving to us of your word and the revelation of that word to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We Thank you, Lord, how far we have come through this gospel according to Matthew, how much we have learned, how much we have gleaned. And we pray also, Lord, hopefully much that has been implanted into our hearts for fruitful goodness in our kingdom lives. Help us now as we continue to study your word, to study uh, the amazing magnitude of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May it fill our hearts with joy even as we study it tonight. And so we ask for your strength and your wisdom in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, last week... We went through Matthew 27, 62 through 28, 10. I'm going to give a recap of that. First, we saw in in 27, verse 62, we see the the chief priests, the Pharisees, they come, they make a petition to Pilate, and they did this on the Sabbath. And they wanted him to command this tomb that Jesus had been buried in, they said, to be made fully secure because we don't want his disciples coming, secretly stealing the body and telling people that he had risen from the dead. And they said that such a fraud would be worse than even his claim to be Messiah. And so we saw that Pilate granted this request. He gave them a sizable, or we could say a numerable, watch of Roman soldiers, and he instructed these religious leaders, he said, go ahead, make it as secure as you can. And we made this statement, concluding Matthew 27, that in their sealing of the tomb through such a formidable guard of hardened Roman soldiers, that these evil men, these religious leaders, they actually uh, were in the process of making the proof of the resurrection irrefutable. Mm -hmm. Then we got into Matthew 28. And as Matthew 28 begins, we see Mary Magdalene and what Matthew refers to as the other Mary traveling to the tomb in the early morning on Sunday, the day after Passover. And prior to them reaching this tomb, Matthew reveals to us that there had been a violent earthquake that came about as an angel of the Lord descends from heaven. He rolls back the tombstone and he sits upon it. This angel is described as being clothed in brilliant white clothing, radiating the holiness of God, the purity of His nature, Uh, through this sparkling luster of his garments. What happened to those battle-tested Roman soldiers when they see this angel? They are shaken. Just as the earth was shaken, these men are shaken, and they become like dead men from their terror. We said nearly scared to death. So while these guys are laying on the ground, the angel declares to these faithful women who now show up, Stop being afraid. No longer be afraid. Why? Because you are here with noble intentions. And he had amazingly good news for them. 
The crucified Jesus whom they sought was no longer there, for he had risen from the grave back to life just as he predicted that he would. And so the angel told these women to do two things. First, come look at the tomb. Come inside, look at this empty tomb as witnesses that Jesus is no longer dead. And secondly, you have a message now to take and you need to do it urgently. Take it to the 11 disciples that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead because the risen Lord is going to appear to them in Galilee with him leading the way. And so we see obedience from the women. They go, they quickly leave the tomb, Matthew says, with great fear and joy. And as they run to tell the disciples, they are met or they are encountered by the resurrected Jesus on the way. Oh, what joy. And so they take hold of Jesus' feet. They receive irrefutable confirmation in their hearts that Jesus was alive in the flesh, not a spirit, in the flesh. And what do they do? They fall down. They worship Him as God. And Jesus gives them those same instructions. Go tell my brothers. And so that is just a really quick synopsis. Because Matthew doesn't spend a lot of time uh, talking about the resurrection. But he does give us those those ten verses. um, And that really, last week, was more of the the study of the narrative of the text. And as I said, tonight we're going to look more at the theological implications of the resurrection of Jesus. But let's read that narrative again. Let's read 28, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. To base our study tonight, we're not going to go word by word as we do. We're going to just talk about the resurrection as a whole. But let's first read the gospel according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn, Of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. May the Lord write the eternal truths of his word once again to our hearts on this Wednesday night. We're at Teaching 101. Again, this is the theological implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now think about what we've covered so far, chapters 1 through 27. What have they been speaking of? They've been speaking um, comprehensively of, of this period of time that we call the state of Christ's humiliation. 
So 27 chapters dedicated to the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And of course, in chapter 28, the passage that I just read and beyond now advances into the state of exaltation. So we go from his humiliation to his exaltation. And those two states, humiliation and exaltation of the God-man of Jesus, are captured quite well by the Apostle Paul. This is a familiar passage to us all. I trust Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, where Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped or tightly held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Here's the, the uh, humiliation, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. There's the passive obedience. Even death on a cross. There's the shameful death. Quite a humiliation. Therefore, because of all those things that the God-man accomplished during his humiliation, God has highly exalted him. So there's the transfer to the state of exaltation and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see the Apostle Peter also referring to this exaltation at the right hand of God. You see him mention that in Acts 2.33, also Acts 5.31 Uh, But as we think about the exaltation of of Christ, there are, uh, we could say, four different steps or instances of that exaltation. A lot of times when we think of the exaltation of Christ, we think exclusively of the resurrection. That's not really correct. It is simply the first step or the first instance of his exaltation. So number one, you have his resurrection from the dead, which is important. Number two, we're going to get into this in the book of Acts his ascension to heaven. So that's the second step, the second instance. Three, his session, or we could call it his enthronement at the right hand of God. And fourthly, what we looked at in the Olivet Discourse, his second coming, to judge the world at the last day. So resurrection, ascension, session, and second coming are the four components of his exaltation. And of course, that is an eternal state that continues on forever and ever. We could say, or we could agree with this statement that the resurrection of Jesus, of Christ from the dead, is the cardinal, or the chief, doctrine of our Christian religion because salvation hinges upon faith and confession of this truth. And that means that everything that we've studied in the gospel according to Matthew so far from this incarnation of Jesus all the way back in chapter 1 to his shameful death on a cross that we've just studied in chapter 27 and everything in between, every single word of those 27 chapters is meaningless if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Absolutely meaningless if he had died and stayed dead. And so all those things we talked about, redemption, reconciliation, penal substitution, active obedience, passive obedience, 
the cry of dereliction, the voluntarily yielding up of his spirit in death, divine satisfaction, peace with God, all that cosmic phenomena that we saw taking place around his death, those are all just mere theological words and events that have no meaning for the Christian if Jesus had remained dead in Joseph's tomb. And to that end, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and we were going to get a lot from 1 Corinthians 15 tonight, but in verse 14, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, he says, Then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Meaningless, pointless. And so if Christ has not been raised, we would have no legitimate gospel, no reasonable faith, no reliable revelation, no real forgiveness, and no eternal life. All of those things. But what does Paul say? He says that the professing Christian, what do they confess? What is part of their confession as part of of their salvation? In Romans 10, verses 9 through 11, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's showing that that belief in the resurrection of the risen Lord is a key component to the confession or your profession of faith in Christ. When you profess faith in Christ, you are professing faith in a risen Christ, a resurrected Lord. He says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him, in the resurrected Lord, will not be put to shame. So just as we confess that Jesus was born in the flesh, and we confess that, that He was born in the flesh just like ours, that He lived a perfect life completely unlike ours, that He died a real death at the hands of Roman soldiers, it is of equal importance then for us to confess that He really and truly was resurrected from the dead just as He Himself said. And instead of going to the Gospels for that statement, think of that short phrase that he says to the church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. He says, write this to the angel. He says, the words of the first and the last. He's referring to himself, who died and came to life. That's the resurrected Lord. And so as we think then, or at least we're going to focus, of course, on just one part of his exaltation, that resurrection, But the exaltation of Christ, Herman Bavink, he says it's not an accidental appendage. He says it's not an arbitrary addendum to the humiliation which in the days of his flesh he suffered. He says, but even as the humiliation, it is an indispensable component of the work of redemption which Christ has to complete. So just as critical as it was for him to die on the cross so too did Christ need to complete the the, the act of his exaltation. He says, in the exaltation, the humiliation gets its seal and crown. So the humiliation is crowned through the exaltation. Just as the work of humiliation was assigned him, 
and the covenant of redemption, so was that of exaltation. He must do it. He says it is His work. Remember we talked about that in chapter 8 of the London Baptist Confession, Christ the Mediator. He says no one else can do it. No one else can do it. So I want to break it down into a few different um, themes tonight. First, I want to talk about what I would call the attestation of the resurrection, meaning those who, who saw the resurrected Lord in the flesh. And take notice, um, of course, that each of the four Gospels records Christ's resurrection. We find that in Matthew 28, of course, we've read that. Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. Now, who saw the resurrected Lord? Well, we know the angels did. The Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. The apostles all testified to this truth that Jesus had risen from the dead. And let me just run through a number of of people that Scripture reveals to us had seen the resurrected Christ. Mary Magdalene in John 20. The women at the grave, as we just read in Matthew 28. Peter in Luke 24. There's two disciples on the way to Emmaus. We know the name of one, Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other. That's also in Luke 24. Back in John 20, we see the 11 except for Thomas seeing Christ. And then a little bit later, I think it's like eight or nine verses later, but it's eight days later. Then the 11, including Thomas, see the resurrected Lord. In John 21, one chapter later, seven of the 11 who had gone fishing see Jesus. Of course, in Matthew 28, as we're going to get to next week, we're going to see the 11 with Jesus in Galilee. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that more than 500 brothers at once. He goes on to also say James. In Acts chapter 1, when we get to Acts, we see the 11 yet again when Jesus ascends to heaven. We see Stephen actually seeing the resurrected Lord as he's about to die. He sees Christ looking down from his enthronement upon him in Acts chapter 7. Paul sees the resurrected Lord on his way to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. You can also read of his experience where he says, and and last of all, he appeared to me in 1 Corinthians 15. And then partly what I was just reading, we see the resurrected, exalted Lord appear to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1. So as we observed last week, as the women, as they grasp the feet of Jesus, they physically touch his feet, we we then see this this very important statement that Jesus arose in his physical flesh, his physical body. This is the same. This is the identical body that was put to death on the cross. And his resurrected body retained all the characteristics of, of a human body. It was a visible body. It was a tangible body. And it was a local body, meaning that it was in a specific place at a specific time. And that resurrected body, and this especially um, shows up in the story with Thomas, his resurrected body retained those physical effects of the things that he had endured on the cross. Remember, he says, put your hand into my side and put your fingers through the holes in my hand and my feet where they were pierced. And also, 
to prove that he had physical flesh. In Luke 24, verses 36 through 43, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, this is the disciples, and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. And what did they think they saw? A ghost or a spirit. They didn't think it was a real person. And he said to them, why are you troubled? You look like you've seen a ghost. He said, why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said them, said this, he showed that to them. He showed them his hands and his feet. And they still, it says they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, like maybe pinching themselves. I don't know if this can really be true. And so what does he say? He says, have you anything here to eat? Ghosts don't eat. And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. And they probably never smiled so much at watching somebody eat a piece of broiled (laughs) fish. But as much as we are making the statement that he retained these bodily characteristics, we must also make this um, amazing statement that his body also becomes, through the resurrection, becomes immortal. As Acts 13.34 says, no more to return to corruption. No corruption of the flesh. And as Philippians 3.21 says, this is a glorious body. A glorious body. But it is quite important because the church has um, had different battles that have been waged about this. A lot of heresies deal with you know, the nature of Christ. And, and, and there was no doubt a battle on this. But, but, the, but what matters here at the resurrection of Christ is this, this physical resurrection. A spiritual resurrection would not be enough. It would only be, we could say, half a victory, so to speak. And and half a victory is not a victory. Half a victory is a defeat. Um, The whole of man, or then man as man as he is in soul and body, remember this is the same component of man, we are soul and body, would not have been removed from the pale of death's dominion. And as Bavink, as I'm reading from him again here, he says, Satan would have remained the conqueror in a large area And he says, by his physical resurrection, it was proved that Jesus, by his obedience, even unto the cross and the grave, had perfectly conquered sin, perfectly conquered all the consequences of sin, including death. And and he says, he had, so to speak, thrown it back out of the human world. He threw death and sin back out of the human world through his victory and had, through his resurrection, he ushered in a new life of incorruptibility. So he says, death may therefore have come into the world by a man, of course it's Adam, but the resurrection from the dead also came by a man. Christ is himself the resurrection and the life. So that that is just a quick look at the attestation of the resurrection. Let's talk about the theological significance of the resurrection. We're going, to get, we're going to start at 1 Corinthians 15 again. But I want you to see in just two verses that Paul writes that there is four indispensable components to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says, 
For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is a tier one issue, primary. He says, what I also received from the Lord himself. Number one, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So there's the first indispensable component. He died for our sins. Number two, that he was buried. Three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And number four, what we just talked about, that he appeared. So he died, he was buried, he raised, he was, was raised, and then he appeared to people. People didn't just say, well, he, he, he was raised, but no one ever saw him. No, many, many people saw the resurrected Lord. And so this resurrection of Jesus, it, it proved many things. One of the things it proved was his own claims. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed divinity. Remember back to John chapter 2. We've referenced this a few times in verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Then John gives us that like knowledge bomb. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. But then notice this next part. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so it was through his resurrection that they believed. They believed in all the things that he had claimed about himself. And so it proved his messianic and his divine claims. It also was a proof of a certainty, this is what Peter says, of a certainty that God had accepted his sacrifice and that through his resurrection, as as Peter preaches in Acts 2.36, he says that God has declared him to be both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ. God and Messiah. So it was through his resurrection that, that God made that declaration. And there is, therefore, we could say, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because Christ has been raised. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And Paul says, more than that, who was raised, resurrected, made alive. He says, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And as we think of that intercession, then we could say that what Christ secured for us in his death is guaranteed to us by his life. So there's a securing of something in his death, but the hope that we have of the certainty of it comes through his resurrection life. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, he says, the former priests were many in number, Many high priests, Aaron and beyond. Why? He says, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, which is a really unique way of saying they died and they couldn't continue. They were prevented by death. But he, this is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
How can he continue forever? Because he's been raised from the dead. Consequently, because of this, here's the result. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through the intercessory work of the high priest, since or because he always lives to make intercession for them. So that's just a really tiny um, view of this theological significance. But I want to ask the question next, why was it necessary and significant? So why was it necessary and significant for Christ to be physically resurrected? And of course, as we said this before, why did Jesus have to die a death of, on the cross? Is to fulfill prophecy. So firstly, to fulfill prophecy. Now, before we look at just a few Old Testament passages, I want to use the words of Christ himself. And this is in one of those attestation moments. This is when he's walking and talking with Cleopas and his companion in Luke 24, uh, 25 through 27. Remember, he asked them, he's like, what's going on around here? And they said, are you from another planet? Do you not know who died? And what does he say? He said to them in verse 25, oh, foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's hailing back to prophetic scripture. He said, was it not necessary that that the Christ should suffer these things and, secondly, enter into his glory? There's the glorification. There's the exaltation. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he walked through all these scriptures that talked about these very things. And not just his death, but also his exaltation, his resurrection. Now, Psalm 16, verse 10, is a commonly um, cited passage in the New Testament. But in Psalm 16, 10, it says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And of course, that's speaking of Christ. And what does it mean that he wouldn't be abandoned to Sheol or that, his, that he would not see corruption? Is that he would not stay dead. He would be raised to life. And that's confirmed uh, t- at least twice in Acts, Acts 2.31. Peter's first sermon is just amazing. And also in Acts 13, verses 35 through 37. So there's, there's one. And, and by the way, I'm just taking a, a small handful tonight. Isaiah 53, which we have referenced many times. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Verse 10, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, so as he dies, you know, there's, there's the crucifixion, he shall see his offspring. That's talking of the life that is to come for this same um, suffering servant. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And you can compare that with Acts chapter 8, verses 32 and 35. Think also of that Psalm, Psalm 2, verse 7. The psalmist writes, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And there's implications of the resurrection even in that statement. Again, with Acts, Acts 13, 33. And of course, 
The writer of Hebrews also mentions that as he opens up his epistle, for to which of the angels did God ever say in verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalms are really critical to understanding in the New Testament. They're cited more than any other Old Testament book. Psalms are. But here's another New Testament passage, Romans 1, 1 through 4. This is the beginning to, you know, the epistle of Romans. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. You know, just getting through that few phrases right there. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones preached like seven (laughs) sermons already. But he says, um, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we just talked about what are the components of the gospel, and one of them being the resurrection. He says, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Really significant statement to open that book. Now, this is a little less direct, but it's also a very um, neat insight through the words of Hosea. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, he says, Come, let us return to the Lord, that, for He has torn, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up. Raise us up. How could He raise us up? through the raising up of His Son, the one who paid our sin debt. On the third day, He will raise us up that, here's the result, that we may live before Him. The last passage I'll give you here just regarding prophecy. This is Acts, or um, yeah, this is Acts chapter 26. This is Paul. He was speaking before, I believe it's Festus and also King Agrippa. Verses 22 and 23, Paul says, To this day I have, had, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that, what? By being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. So the resurrection of Christ is a declaration of the gospel to the world, to Jews and Gentiles alike. And there are many other passages that speak prophetically of the work of the God-man. But that's the first necessary and significant reason for why he had to be physically resurrected. Secondly, um, to fulfill types. We've talked about typology a lot, these, 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 these typological moments, these things that served as a type of Christ. So they point it forward to Christ, and of course Christ is the anti-type, the fulfillment of these types. Of course, think of that very formidable experience as, as Abraham takes his son Isaac up the mountain. There's, you know, the mountain, Christ is crucified on a mountain, so to speak. But instead of going to Genesis, I'm going to read to you from Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11:17 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, 
offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, there's another type, only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, he believed, Abraham believed that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Meaning that as as Isaac lays on that altar, he could be reckoned or considered to be as good as dead. And so it's as if when he took him off the altar that he received him back from the dead. So there's this picture of the only son dying and being brought back from the dead. And there are many other things in the Old Testament. Think of, of, of Joseph. Joseph serving as a type of Christ. He is cast into a pit. And technically he's cast into a pit twice. By his brothers and then by the master that he serves. Uh, but very importantly there is you think of him being cast in by his own brothers. Christ is, 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 is betrayed by his own countrymen. So there's that same picture. But then what happens later? Joseph is brought out of the pit. We can almost say out of the, the tomb and he is exalted. And Christ is exalted. David, what's he doing early in his life? After Saul's love grows cold for him, he's running for his life. He's hiding in caves. Saul's determined to kill him. Again, his own countrymen, but Saul's determined to kill him. And what happens later? David is exalted as king of Israel. Now, this next one is very clear because Jesus referenced this one. We, went, we saw that back in chapter 12. But Jonah, Jonah in the belly of the whale. In Jonah 1.17, it says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He doesn't stay there. He's vomited out. He's resurrected, so to speak, from the fish. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 12.40? <clears throat> For as just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah doesn't stay in the fish. Christ does not stay in the grave. Daniel, in the lion's den. What does the lion's den signify? It signifies death, certain death. And then what happens in the morning? The stone is rolled away. Stone's rolled away, and it says he's, he's alive, but there's this picture of him being brought out of the pit of death, out of, out of the, the, the tomb of death. All of these things, and many more. Again, we've just picked a small handful of the types in the Old Testament. We could teach many lessons just on that. But all of these events in redemptive history, they were preparing God's people for something And that was for the death and resurrection of all deaths and resurrections, meaning the greatest death and resurrection, the the number one, the premier. And so it was necessary and significant for Christ to be physically resurrected, to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill types, and thirdly, to completely execute the office of mediator. Again, going back to to chapter 8 of the London Baptist Confession of Christ the Mediator, 
what did the mediator need to do? Well, he needed to conquer death. How do you conquer death? You have to come back to life. Conquer death, number one, Hosea 13, 14. He needed to be an eternal king, Psalm 45, 6. To enter as the high priest, not into holy places made with hands, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 24, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Also to send forth the Holy Spirit from heaven to his people as he promised he would do in John 16, verse 7. Jesus remained dead in the tomb. He could do none of those things. And so in order to completely execute his office as mediator, it was necessary and it was significant for him to be physically resurrected from the dead. Now, what spiritual benefits derive from the resurrection of Christ? And again, we're not going to be able to cover everything. I hope that as we go through teachings like these, that they sort of, they whet your appetite. I'd like to go study that more. He didn't mention something that I want to go study out. But there's two that I want to specifically talk about tonight. And the first is justification. So what spiritual benefits derive from the resurrection of Christ? Number one, justification. Romans 4, 24 through 25 Paul says it will be counted, or you could use the word imputed, to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. To give a fairly basic definition of justification, we could say that justification is God's forensic legal declaration of the righteousness of a sinner. Declaring a sinner to be righteous. Christ could be referred to at times as the surety, as, as, that, as that down payment. And, and so Brockle, reading him, he says, as long as the surety still suffered and death had power over him, he says the final penny had not as yet been paid. So to remain dead in the grave would be this sort of this picture of our sin debt not being paid, still being owed. He said his conquering of the last enemy, death, and his triumphant appearance as being alive were evidences that sin had been fully atoned for, the ransom had been paid, God's justice had been satisfied, and that thus the surety was justified, and if the surety is justified, then so are his people. 1 Timothy 3.16 Great indeed, Paul says, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, referring to Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated, or you could use the word there, justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And most of that verse is referring to his state of exaltation. But the righteousness that God gives to his people 
includes vindication. So just as Christ is vindicated, so are His people. They're vindicated. Vindicated from what? They're vindicated from all accusations, and they're free from all condemnation. I would refer you to Isaiah 54, 17. But this vindication, as I just sort of mentioned, it comes about through that obedience. We talked about obedience a couple weeks ago. The obedience of God's servant. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous or reckoned to be righteous, declared to be righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so according to Romans 3, all who believe through faith in Christ Jesus, they're pronounced to be justified. How? Paul says justified by God's grace as a gift He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But we have to point out yet again, where he says it is a gracious gift of God. How is it received? It's received through an instrument. That instrument is faith. So this gift is received through faith. And so because Christ was justified by God, and we could say that that is evidenced through his resurrection, then there's not one sin, there's not even part of a sin for which Christ has not made satisfaction. What's the result? All of God's children, those who are in Christ through faith, are free from all guilt and punishment. So what's the evidence of perfect satisfaction? It's Christ having risen from the dead. That's the evidence. And so that leads us then to to that blessed hope, that blessed hope that if you are in Christ by faith, your your heart can well up with great confidence and you can say uh, sort of rhetorically, has not my surety risen from the dead and thus entered into eternal rest? Are you not speaking to God? Are you not, because of this, my, my reconciled God and Father, am I not at peace with you? And of course, the answers to all those questions are a resounding Yes, because Christ is risen from the dead. So justification, I want to spend a little bit longer on this second part, and that is sanctification. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you, and he, Paul's referring to a long list of, of, I don't know if we want to call them categories of sinners, but maybe descriptions of sinful lifestyles. He says, and such were some of you, but you, he's referring to those who, by faith in Christ, have been transformed. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified. He also says, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I'm going to give you a little bit longer of a definition for sanctification and then make some clarifications about it. But sanctification at least the sanctification that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 6, is a basic and a radical change that takes place in a sinner's moral and ethical condition when they are united to Christ in effectual calling and regeneration. And I think we've been talking about that in Sunday School this month. 
So in that moment, when you are united to Christ, this is this radical change. And so when we're talking about sanctification here, we are distinguishing that from what we call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is is what people typically think of when you use the word sanctification. That is this ongoing growth, spiritual growth in the life of a believer, in holiness, in their Christian life. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about here a definitive sanctification, a point-in-time sanctification. And so justification and definitive sanctification, they are distinguishably different. We've just defined them. They are two different things. But what do they do? They always go hand-in-hand. Those two things go hand-in-hand the same way that faith and repentance do. And we're going to see that in Acts. But sometimes they say, repent. Sometimes they say have faith, but those two things are always inseparably joined together. And in these two things, in justification, in definitive sanctification, who is the object? The resurrected Christ is the object. The gospel is the means of its communication from God, and faith is the the means of our receiving it from Him. And so when we talk about definitive sanctification, it's not just a a change in our legal status. It's not just a change in our spiritual position. This is is defining by Paul as an entirely new spiritual condition being brought about. We could say it's a new spiritual situation because it is referring to being in Christ, in Christ Jesus Jesus. And because all that is found in Christ is holy, all of it is, because it is in Christ, then we can say that Christ is our sanctification. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 is a very key passage for definitive sanctification. Paul thoroughly explains our union with Christ. Just want to read a few verses from there, not all 11 verses, but verses 3 through 6, where Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's a key phrase there, no longer enslaved to sin. And you might read through those 11 verses and you might ask a few questions. How were we baptized into the death of Christ? How are we united to him in his death and resurrection? How is our old self crucified with him? Well, to to explain that, we can see as we read through Scripture that all those who are saved, that they existed in the eternal plan of God. We've talked about that before. An eternal um, covenant of redemption, a plan of redemption. And so, as Jesus dies on the cross, as we just 
covered in chapter 27. Jesus died for real people, not theoretical people. He died for real people in time and space. In redemptive history, we could say that when the historical Jesus died, he died in the place of historical people, people through history. And what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross then, because of that, is is truly and really in union with the people for whom he is doing this act upon the cross. These are the people who are chosen by the Father in the Son. And so as Jesus is hanging on that cross, even in that moment of great dereliction, he's hanging there for real people. And so if you are in Christ, by faith, you can say that Jesus died in my person, in my place, in my person, and all of my real sin, even sin that I have yet to commit, was placed upon him. And so what can we not do then? We can never disassociate the death and resurrection of Christ from the interest of those whom he died and rose for on their behalf. It was only as he was united to them and they to him, or we could say to to us and us to him, that his death and resurrection have any purpose or or, or any meaning or effect. And so there's this this understanding of, of this union with Christ. We're united to Christ on that cross in his death and his burial and then his resurrection. And so there's a there's a relationship there. There's an intimacy in that union. And so Paul is saying that those who are united to Christ, they have to be regarded as dying and raising with him when he died and rose again on the third day. And of course, we just saw a picture of that on Sunday in the baptisms that took place. A picture. It's not happening then, but it's a picture of that uniting to Christ. And so when Paul says that our, that our self, our old self was crucified with him, he means that our old self died with Christ. It died with Christ. What happens on the cross? We see that Jesus is taking the penalty for our sin, but he's not just taking the penalty for us and he's dealing with something there on the cross, and that is he's dealing with the power in dominion of sin. Why is that important? Because we're enslaved by it. Without him dealing with the power and and the dominion of sin, we can't break the shackles of that sin. And so Christ dies to the power, to the dominion of sin and death, and, and through his resurrection, what does he do? He breaks the bonds of that dominion of sin to set us free. So what's the end result? The end result is that those who are united to Christ in his death and resurrection, Paul says they become dead. They become dead to the power and dominion of sin. Doesn't mean you don't sin again. It just means you're not enslaved by it. You no longer are going to be dominated by sin if you are in Christ. Stephen Charnock says, by virtue of his death, there is no condemnation for sin. By virtue of the grace of his spirit, there is no dominion of sin. And then going into Hebrews yet again, 
Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10. Consequently, the writer of Hebrews says, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is what the suffering servant said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. There's another mention of the prophecy concerning him. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. And there's that parenthetical expression, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, so he says, I'm going to do your will. He does his will. He says, by that will, and what is the will? The will of of God is that he dies and that he's raised. By that will, we have been sanctified. Sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Or you could say, or once and never again. Perfect satisfaction. And so it's at the cross then where Jesus is completely sanctified, or we could say ultimately sanctified, for there it's it's where God puts all the sins of his people on his son. Jesus is there and he's under the dominion and the power of sin. He's under the wrath of God. And so as he takes that wrath of God, as he atones for the sins of his people, we can see this picture as if the sins are washed off of him through his blood. And he's sanctified. That's his ultimate sanctification. And so in a certain sense, we can say that Jesus is cleansed by taking the wrath, dying, then rising and bringing about what Paul calls a new creation. And so it's in his death and resurrection. Again, this is why the resurrection is so important. We don't speak of just the death. We don't speak of just the resurrection. Those two things, they go together. But it's in both of those things then that Christ breaks the power of sin. He triumphs over the God of this world, executing judgment upon it and its rulers. And it's through that victory. How do we know that the victory has taken place? It's through the resurrection But it's by that victory he delivers all those who are united to him from the power of darkness. And there's that great transfer that Paul says from the the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that's an eternal kingdom of light and life. Again, that's just a quick overview of the justification and the sanctification wrought. So the last part I want to quickly cover here is the Christian's hope in the resurrection. Christians hope in the resurrection. So not only is Christ the instrumental cause of our justification, of our sanctification through his death and resurrection, but his resurrection also functions to um, instrumentally for the resurrection of believers, of the bodies of believers. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, we find Paul telling us, telling his readers, that Christ has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for death. 
through His resurrection from the dead. How did Christ become the first fruits? He says, through the resurrection of the dead. 15 verses 20 through 23, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. I would encourage you to go back to the Old Testament and study out what were the first fruits. But this was again a, a, a thing that prefigured things that were going to happen in the New Testament, but they were prefigured in these Old Testament harvests. You can find them in Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 26. But what are they doing in that first fruits offering? They're taking a small portion of their harvest, the very first part of it that comes, and they're offering it up before God as an offering to Him. They're dedicating um, symbolically our entire future harvest that is yet to come. And it's not even here yet, but we're offering it symbolically to you, God. The first fruits came first. Christ is raised from the dead first. And so these first fruits came first, and they contained in them the whole rest of the grain harvest that was to come. Similarly, Christ's resurrection, we could say, is part and parcel of the future resurrection of all who belong to Him at His coming. And so we know then, because Christ was raised from the dead, that this full spiritual harvest of all His people is going to come in due time. Christ, the first in the resurrection, is going to be followed by countless multitudes who are united to Him, who belong to Him. Romans 8.11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. John chapter 5, verses 26 through 29, For as the Father has life in Himself, so has He granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So those who are united to Christ, those who have believed on Him in faith, those who have confessed Christ as Lord and resurrected from the dead as a fruit and a consequence of His resurrection, what's going to happen? We will be changed from corruptible into incorruptible, from dishonor to glory, as Paul says, and from weakness into power. And again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, Paul says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living, a living being, 
the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And then in verse 49, he says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Speaking of Christ. So by way of application, as we quickly close then tonight, what should be your response to the resurrection? Do you just say, oh, that's nice? What should your response be to this monumental, or as, as we quoted earlier, the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith? Well, number one, it's to believe and confess Jesus as Lord. And I'm not going to go back and quote Romans here. I'm going to quote 1 John 4.15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, John writes, and he in God. There's that union with God. So that's the first thing. As, as we are presented, perhaps for the very first time, with this, this good news from the, from the gospel that Jesus is alive, that's the first response, to believe and confess Jesus as Lord. Secondly, that we ought always to remember that the gospel always includes the resurrection. So if you tell someone that Jesus died for, for sins, you better tell them that he also rose from the dead. Thirdly, to remember that the resurrection proves the claims of Jesus. Fourthly, to remember that the resurrection secures and guarantees all the blessings that Jesus purchased in his death. Fifth, to remember that all who die in Christ will be raised from the dead. Sixth, to remember that all who are in Christ have no need to fear death. Seven, to tell unbelievers that there's one simple application to be derived or extracted from the resurrection, and that is to repent. To refuse to repent means that they will one day stand before the resurrected Christ as their judge on the day of wrath. Also, to remember that the resurrection should drive us to a life of faithful Christian ministry. Yet again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56 Sting of death is sin, power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, because of these things, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so what do we preach? We preach Christ risen from the dead. As a bonus homework assignment, I would encourage you to go back to the Psalms and to read through Psalm 118. I want you to read Psalm 118 through a Christocentric lens. Looking at that through the lens of the Messiah, especially would like for you to consider verse 24, a verse you are very familiar with probably seen printed on many things. Maybe you know little children's Sunday school songs about that verse. But consider it in the context of Resurrection Day. Resurrection Day where Christ is raised from the dead. We didn't even get into this aspect tonight. 
But why is it that we don't worship on Saturdays? Why is it that that the Lord's Day is on Sunday? And so I I would encourage you to study through the Scripture. Why are we not Seventh-day Adventists? Is that your homework assignment? As I mentioned last week, next week Luke is going to come and he's going to close out the book, so to speak. He's going to do the final verses, verses 11 through 20. And then the following week we're going to rewalk our way through the book to remember all the things that we've learned and maybe to test your memories just a little bit. But two weeks and we'll be done with this wonderful study of the gospel according to Matthew. And in just a few weeks after that, we'll be embarking upon an equally wonderful study in the Acts of the Apostles. So if you have any questions, please come up afterwards. I thank you for your attendance, for your attention. And I pray that the word of the Lord uh, returns uh, great spiritual blessings in each of your lives. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you the blessed resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the tomb is empty, that all of the things that we saw um, taking place at the cross are fully accomplished, fully enacted, fully imparted to us through the resurrection, that we are justified, that we are definitively sanctified in your sight, that that the power of sin is broken free from us all through your work, O Jesus. May this truly fuel us to live lives of devoted ministry to you. Help us, O Lord, as we proclaim the gospel to others, as we proclaim it to ourselves, that we remember the resurrection as being a vital, vital part of it. Send us away, O Lord, with your blessing. Carry us by your Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.